Chapter Twenty Nine of Vanished Arizona. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Danielle Mortimer. Vanished Arizona: Recollections of the Army Life of a New England Woman by Martha Summerhays. Chapter Twenty Nine: Changing Station. It was the custom to change the stations of the different companies of a regiment about every two years, so the autumn of eighty-two found us on the way to Fort Halleck, a post in Nevada, but differing vastly from the desolate McDermott station. Fort Halleck was only thirteen miles south of the Overland Railroad, and lay near a spur of the Humboldt Range. There were miles of sagebrush between the railroad and the post, but the mountains which rose abruptly five thousand feet on the far side made a magnificent background for the officers' quarters, which lay nestled at the bottom of the foothills. "'Oh, what a lovely post!' I cried as we drove in. Major Sanford of the First Cavalry, with Captain Carr and Lieutenant Oscar Brown, received us. "'Dear me,' I thought, "'if the First Cavalry is made up of such gallant men as these, the old Eighth Infantry will have to look out for its laurels.' Mrs. Sanford and Mrs. Carr gave us a great welcome, and vied with each other in providing for our comfort and we were soon established. It was so good to see the gay yellow of the cavalry again. Now I rode, to my heart's content, and it was good to be alive, to see the cavalry drill, and to ride through the cannons, gorgeous in their flaming autumn tints, then again to gallop through the sagebrush, jumping where we could not turn, starting up rabbits by the score. That little old post, now long since abandoned, marked a pleasant epoch in our life. From the ranches scattered around we could procure butter and squabs and young vegetables, and the soldiers cultivated great garden patches, and our small dinners and breakfasts live in delightful memory. At the end of two years spent so pleasantly with the people of the First Cavalry, our company was again ordered to Angel Island. But a second very active campaign in Arizona and Mexico, against Geronimo, took our soldiers away from us, and we passed through a period of considerable anxiety. June of 86 saw the entire regiment ordered to take station in Arizona once more. We traveled to Tucson in a Pullman car. It was hot and uninteresting. I had been at Tucson nine years before, for a few hours, but the place seemed unfamiliar. I looked for the old tavern. I saw only the railroad restaurant. We went in to take breakfast, before driving out to the post of Fort Lowell, seven miles away. Everything seemed changed. Iced cantaloupe was served by a spick-span alert waiter, then quail on toast. Ice in Arizona? It was like a dream, and I remarked to Jack, This isn't the same Arizona we knew in seventy-four. And then, I don't believe I like it as well, either. All this luxury doesn't seem to belong to the place. After a drive behind some smart mules, over a flat stretch of seven miles, we arrived at Fort Lowell, a rather attractive post, with a long line of officers' quarters, before which ran a level road shaded by beautiful great trees. We were assigned a half of one of these sets of quarters, and as our half had no conveniences for housekeeping, it was arranged that we should join a mess with General and Mrs. Coutts and their family. We soon got settled down to our life there, and we had various recreations. Among them, driving over to Tucson and riding on horseback are those which I remember best. We made a few acquaintances in Tucson, and they sometimes drove out in the evenings, or more frequently rode out on horseback. Then we would gather together on the Coutts' piazza, and everybody sang to the accompaniment of Mrs. Coutts' guitar. 
It was very hot, of course, we had all expected that, but the luxuries obtainable through the coming of the railroad, such as ice, and various summer drinks and lemons and butter, helped out to make the summer there more comfortable. We slept on the piazzas, which ran around the houses on a level with the ground. At that time the fad for sleeping out of doors, at least amongst civilized people, did not exist, and our arrangements were entirely primitive. Our quarters were surrounded by a small yard and a fence. The latter was dilapidated, and the gate swung on one hinge. We were seven miles from anywhere, and surrounded by a desolate country. I did not experience the feeling of terror that I had had at Camp Apache, for instance, nor the gruesome fear of the Arenberg graveyard, nor the appalling fright I had known in crossing the Mugian Range, or in driving through Sanford's Pass. But still there was a haunting feeling of insecurity which hung around me, especially at night. I was awfully afraid of snakes, and no sooner had we lain ourselves down on our cots to sleep than I would hear a rustling among the dry leaves that had blown in under our beds. Then all would be still again, then a crackling and a rustling. In a flash I would be sitting up in bed. Jack, do you hear that? Of course I did not dare to move or jump out of bed, so I would sit, rigid, scared. Jack, what is it? Nonsense, Maddie, go to sleep. It's the toads jumping about in the leaves. But my sleep was fitful and disturbed, and I never knew what a good night's rest was. One night I was awakened by a tremendous snort right over my face. I opened my eyes and looked into the wild eyes of a big black bull. I think I must have screamed, for the bull ran clattering off the piazza and out through the gate. By this time Jack was up, and Harry and Catherine, who slept on the front piazza, came running out, and I said, "'Well, this is the limit of all things, and if that gate isn't mended to-morrow I will know the reason why.' Now I heard a vague rumour that there was a creature of this sort in or near the post, and that he had a habit of wandering around at night, but as I had never seen him, it had made no great impression on my mind. Jack had a great laugh at me, but I did not think then, nor do I now, that it was anything to be laughed at. We had heard much of the old mission of San Xavier del Bac, away the other side of Tucson. Mrs. Coutts decided to go over there and go into camp and paint a picture of San Xavier. It was about sixteen miles from Fort Lowell. So all the camp paraphernalia was gotten ready, and several of the officers joined the party, and we all went over to San Xavier and camped for a few days under the shadow of those beautiful old walls. This mission is almost unknown to the American traveller. Exquisite in colour, form, and architecture, it stands there a silent reminder of the past. The curious carvings and paintings inside the church and the precious old vestments which were shown us by an ancient custodian, filled my mind with wonder. The building is partly in ruins, and the little squirrels were running about the galleries, but the great dome is intact, and many of the wonderful figures which ornament it. Of course we know the Spanish built it about the middle or last of the sixteenth century, and that they tried to Christianize the tribes of Indians who lived around in the vicinity. But there is no sign of priest or communicant now, nothing but a desolate plain around it for miles. No one can possibly understand how the building of this large and beautiful mission was accomplished, and I believe history furnishes very little information. In its archives was found quite recently the charter given by Ferdinand and Isabella to establish the Pueblo of Tucson about the beginning of the sixteenth century. After a few delightful days we broke camp and returned to Fort Lowell. And now the summer was drawing to a close, and we were anticipating the delights of the winter climate at Tucson, when, without a note of warning, came the orders for Fort Neobrera. 
We looked appalled in each other's faces the evening the telegram came, for we did not even know where Fort Niobrara was. We all rushed into Major Wilhelm's quarters, for he always knew everything. We, Mrs. Coutts and several of the other ladies of the post, and myself, were in a state of tremendous excitement. We pounded on Major Wilhelm's door, and we heard a faint voice from his bedroom, for it was after ten o'clock. Then we waited a few moments, and he said, Come in. We opened the door, but there being no light in his quarters, we could not see him. A voice said, What in the name of— But we did not wait for him to finish. We all shouted, Where is Fort Neobrara? The devil, he said. Are we ordered there? Yes, yes, we cried. Where is it? Why, girls, he said, relapsing into his customary moderate tones, it's a hell of a freezing cold place, away up north in Nebraska. We turned our backs and went over to our quarters to have a consultation, and we all retired with sad hearts. Now just think of it, to come to Fort Lowell in July, only to move in November. What could it mean? It was hard to leave the sunny south, to spend the winter in those congealed regions in the north. We were but just settled, and now came another break-up. Our establishment now, with two children, several servants, two saddle-horses, and additional household furnishings, was not so simple as in the beginning of our army life, when three chests and a box or two contained our worldly goods. Each move we made was more difficult than the last. Our allowance of baggage did not begin to cover what we had to take along, and this added greatly to the expense of moving. The enormous waste attending a move, and the heavy outlay incurred in travelling and getting settled anew, kept us always poor. These considerations increased our chagrin over this unexpected change of station. There was nothing to be done, however. Orders are relentless, even if they seem senseless, which this one did, to the women, at least, of the Eighth Infantry. End of chapter 29